If you have your Bibles open to the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, we're going to continue our Beginner's Guide to Church. And this is where we're saying what it means to be part of church. Does church still matter? What was its original intent? Now that the world has changed so much, what's still important about it? Is what we do here important or not? So I want you to to be following along with this. And I'm so grateful for all the feedback that I'm getting and the encouragement that I'm receiving. And just thank you so much. That really pours, uh, pours into my tank, and I'm so grateful for that. Well, being Halloween, um, I can't resist the fact that Today's Halloween, and when church falls on Halloween, it's just kind of a weird deal, and what do you do with it? Um, So I chose not to dress up in costume. You're welcome. But I've shared some of these before, but I want to share some pictures. There is um, a nightmare, a haunted house called Nightmare up in, uh, way up north in Niagara, and they are, they claim to be the scariest haunted house in the country. In fact, if you go to their website, the Nightmare House. Um, if you go to their website, they have a running clock or a ticker showing the people that got scared and, and exited out of the house. You know, and it's like 100,000 people to date, you know, because their, their rule is we're the scariest, but you can exit at any time you want. And so every time somebody exits, they get to add another proud, you know, click to thing. They set up several years ago, they set up basically the equivalent of a camera like you get on roller coasters and you know at a certain spot they take a picture or like a game camera for those of you that are hunters you know something triggers it and it fires off it takes a still picture well they found what they figured is the scariest spot of their haunted house and they set up a camera and remember it's dark when these people are in this moment but then a flash goes off and it captures them in some unique poses okay I've brought some for you, okay? So, the, the Internet's at least good for this. Here's a couple of them. You get the idea here. And I'm sure that these guys all went in pretty tough. We're doing this as a band of brothers. I love the, I'm going to climb up mother um, way, you know. I'm scaling up here. Uh, this is the we're all in this together tagline. I like how there's kind of this decreasing, you know, how much more can we hide? Next one. <laughs> Men, don't choke your women. Okay, I just love the expressions here. And this one. I think what he's doing, he's leaping off the floor like there's lava or something on the floor. And then my absolute favorite one. (laughs) Don't worry, honey, I've got this. I don't know if this is a married couple or a dating couple. if, If they're dating, I hope they're married. I hope they get married. And then I hope that she brings this photo out every single Valentine's. Here's Jim. Here's what's going on in these photos. They go in, I'm sure they go in with a lot of adrenaline pumping, but they go in sure of themselves. And then there's a moment in the dark where you think it's unseen that a bright light comes on and exposes you for who you are. 
And I use that because that's exactly what Paul, the one that writes 1 Corinthians, is doing in this letter that we've been looking at. And he's been talking to this church that he loves, but has some critiques of. And so today, in a very real way, he's going to shine a light right on them and say, you're not who you think you are. You're not all you're cut out to be. You're not behaving in a way, and he's going to expose them. Now, he's going to do it as a father would to his children, wanting to raise them up in a certain way. But we need to pay attention to what he's saying because as he shines the spotlight onto them, he's shining it onto us and anyone that would say, I'm part of, I am the, I'm involved in this thing called church. So if you have your scripture journals, you can open. We're going to be in chapter 4 if you have your Bibles or you want to open up an app. I'm going to read from you and I'm going to just jump in at verse 6. And what Paul is doing, I'll give you the little hint ahead of time. What he's doing is he's now calling into question because they're all consumed with what does it look like to be successful? What's it look like to be powerful? What's it look like to be prominent? And he is calling that into question saying that's not how the Christian faith works. And he says, you are judging me. And he basically has this line of, I don't care. I don't care if you judge me because I can stand up to the measurement. And then he gets to this part in verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos, and this was another leader that they were trying to pit Paul against, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, hold on to that word because we're going to come back to it, in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you what do you have that you did not receive? If, you, if then you received it, why do you boast if you did not receive it? They're basically walking around going, look how good we are. Look how we've got it all together. We're so smart. And he's calling them out. He's saying, you've got this illusion. You were given everything. You know, it would be like a child. You, know, you give a child... Um, uh, you, you prepare the meal for them and you do all the baking all the cook, cooking and all the preparation and then they brag about the meal look what I did you didn't do anything but eat it okay that's all you did that's what he's saying all you did was receive something you received something very valuable but now you're thinking because you received it that you somehow created it or you came to this on your own. And he uses that word, puffed up. Now, you need to understand, Paul is really starting to jab at them. And he uses this particular word. It's the idea of, you have a self-inflated ego right now. Here's the imagery that I think Paul wants us to see. This is what Paul is telling them you look like. You're all puffed up. You're nothing but hot air right now. A pin and you pop. I'd love to see the fish go, you know. That's what he's calling them out. Saying, where do you get this idea 
that you, you're the ones that are so superior. Now, I know it's hard to believe, but they lived in a time when people actually thought they were superior to other people. I mean, it's kind of crazy for us today, I know, but go with it just for a second. And so he's revealing that in them. And then he goes on. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now, I'm going to be honest. Just reading this doesn't do it justice. Because Paul is using dripping sarcasm here. He, he is really playing up. So you actually have to hear a tone. And I usually warn people, but be careful when you read a text message or read an email because we tend to read a certain tone into it. This is one that I wish Paul would have said, here's the tone that I want you to have in it. I think if Paul had had emojis, they would have been really helpful here. So because I love you, I've put emojis into this verse. Okay, so if you want to draw these into your scripture, I think this would be great. But here's how you need to hear it. Once again, everything that follows, Paul is, is reading with incredible sarcasm at it. So starting in verse 8 again. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Do you hear the sarcasm? You're awesome. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They are so consumed with themselves, he's having to call them out. And here's what he does. For I think, verse 9, that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all. And what he's doing now, he's saying, you think Christian leadership looks one way. I'm about to paint you a picture of what it looks like. And he's calls on his own, what's known as his apostleship, his ordained leadership in the church, his proclamation of who Jesus is. And he says, God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Now just hold there for a second. Because what he is saying is an imagery that they would have picked up immediately. We're used to parades, but our biggest definition of a parade comes every year at the very next holiday at Thanksgiving, right? You know, the Macy's Day Parade. And when you go through the Macy's Day, Thanksgiving Day Parade, you go through all the floats, and it's really cool to see. And at the very end of it, who shows up? It's not a trick question. Santa Claus, okay? So he's kind of like the highlight of the parade at the very end. And... We think of praise that they get better and better and better as they go. The praise that they were used to were praised by conquering commanders and kings and generals. And the way that that parade would work is the commander or the general would lead the parade. And it would be an impressive sight. And he would be up on a mount and a steed or he'd be carried somehow 
up on some type of cart or vehicle, but it would be clear that he was in control. And there would be trumpets and noise and, and people going out right in front of him, you know, calling out his name and praising him. Behind him would have been his commanders and the soldiers that had won the battle. And they would have marched and it would have been an impressive sight to see. And at the end, God has exhibited us, us apostles, last of all. He, God has put us on display last of all. In some translation it says, at the end of the line. So this is what he's talking about. At the end of the line would have been the conquered people, the slaves, those that were facing execution and imprisonment and slavery. And they would not have been cleaned up for the parade. They would be there bruised and tattered and bloody and torn. They would have been a sight, all right. But not a sight that you would have emulated. Not a sight that you would have wanted to be. And as they walked along, they would have been spat upon and jeered. Why? Because they lost. And when you lose, you don't get to set the rules. And what Paul is saying is that we lost in the name of Jesus. And we surrendered to him. And now as the world looks in on us, we look like we're battered and beaten. Because the world has one set of eyes. And the world wants to focus on the front of the parade, but not see what's going on in the real place where God has placed us in the parade. Scripture goes on. Here's 10. We are fools for Christ's sake. Now he's back to the sarcasm. But you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and we're buffeted in homelessness. You see all the imagery about how unattractive these guys would be. And we labor, working with our own hands. Now, that's a little unusual for us because we actually pride somebody that works with their own hands. In this context, in this culture, working with your own hands means you had to fight for your own means. You did not come from noble status. To come from noble status means you didn't have to work with your own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like, and here's two great words he uses, scum of the world and refuse of all things. Paul says, when Christian leadership is displayed properly, the result by the world is, that's the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. These two words have a particular meaning. They are the things that are scraped off and thrown away. So, Think about if, if you've ever gathered all the plates off the table and you scrape them all into one bowl and everything gets congealed in the same ugh, mess. That's it. Or like I was when I was a kid, playing outside, running up and back and forth in the backyard, and we had a dog. Every now and then there was a need to scrape something off. This is what Paul's talking about. This word was actually used to refer to prisoners that were going to be executed for the coming harvest festival, for the coming 
um, fertility rights. They were expendable. Paul is saying, when looked at the Christian leader, from the perspective of the world, the world has a hard time figuring out what good are they. It does not draw respect. It does not draw honor to it. And so he finishes up with this last portion. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, and what he means by that, the word guides there, it means essentially it's a mentor person. It's the person that would oversee the young men of the house and try to train them up. But the way Paul's using it is you have countless babysitters. You may have a lot of babysitters out there, but you don't have many fathers. And Paul refers to himself as their father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That's the verse that you circle. That's the verse that you highlight. That's the verse that you hold on to. Because Paul, this whole section, he's saying, you look at me and you want to judge me because there's nothing pleasant about me by the world standards. I'm not the most eloquent person. I'm not the most successful person. I'm not the best looking person. I'm not the most um, influential person. And you look at Paul and we look at Paul and we go, There doesn't seem to be any of the markers that we care about, Paul. And Paul would say, exactly right. Because I have chosen to follow one that went to a cross. The whole move of Jesus. We sang earlier about the highest place, and Justin was was absolutely right. Jesus chose the downward path. He was equal to God and yet did not choose um, equality to God, something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, nothing, even becoming a servant unto death. That's the path of the one that Paul follows. He says, I'm imitating him, so you imitate me. It's an upside-down world, and it totally changes everything. See, we get caught up in the American dream, don't we? And the American dream has made its way into Christianity. And I'm not bashing on the American dream, but let's understand the Christian version of the American dream goes something like this. That if you're a good person and you're a faithful person and you go to church and you do all the right things, at the end of your life, there will come this moment where you're financially successful. You're very comfortable Your family is gathered around you on the front porch as you rock gently and they sing praises to you. That's not a bad dream. But unfortunately, it's just not the Christian dream. Now, if that ends up being how it turns out, that's great. But we've set that as the target. And we have to remember that we follow one whose life led straight to the cross. And we've got to be real careful that we don't start thinking, I can follow Jesus, but I can avoid the cross. See, there is incredible power in the resurrection. There is Easter power in the resurrection. But what Paul is reminding them, to get to a resurrection, there must be a crucifixion first. He's saying, 
stop following and pursuing all the other markers of success. All the things that want to puff you up, but be an imitator of me because I'm going to imitate Jesus. So here's the takeaway. Jesus doesn't need fans. He wants disciples. Several years ago, a guy named Kyle Ottoman started writing a series of lessons or curriculum that had no longer a fan. That is, I'm not a fan of Jesus. And I just wish that I had come up with that because it's such a great line. Then we're not going to be a fan of Jesus because if you think about what a fan does, when you think about fan of sports, when I watch sports, I can be very impressed with the athletic proudness on the field or on the golf course or on the basketball court. And I can admire it all kinds of ways and be a fan of it. And some of you are fans and you've got your fanatic for your sports team or for your particular player. But when I watch sports, I'm not watching it going, okay, if I move like that, I can get better. I, I, can, I can imitate that golf swing. I can imitate that dribble pattern. I, I'm not watching it because I'm trying to incorporate it into my life. Some of our students I know, because I get a chance to hang out with them at Summit on Wednesday nights, and they're involved in athletics and sports or different uh, events where they're actually watching some people, and they watch differently because they are trying to pick up ways. They are trying to pick up clues and hints on how can I bring that into my particular game, into my particular play style. But I'm just a fan. And the problem is Jesus doesn't need fans. He wants people that want to incorporate his life into theirs and the word for that is being a disciple so I've got some questions for you here's what I want you to take away I've got two main questions and two sub questions one under each of those first question is this who are you imitating Paul doesn't say it's bad to imitate somebody he just says imitate the right person so who in your world are you imitating who do you look that's a little bit older maybe a little bit further down the line than you that you've set your sights on and says, I'd like to be like them. Because this is where the second question comes into play. Who are they imitating? And I'm going to tell you to think about it really hard because if they're not imitating Jesus, then that may not be the person that you need to imitate. They may be incredibly successful in your line of work. And there may be a lot there to, that, that you're trying to follow, but how's their family? How's their marriage? How's their kids? How's their faith? How's the people that are around them? How do they treat them? So who are they imitating? And the second one's this. Who's imitating you? Parents, we've got to take this one real serious. Because <laughs> our kids are watching. Dads, I'm going to pick on you just for a second. If there's anything that we're going to do to change the course our world's going, it's going to be because we've got men that stand up and say, I'm willing to lead the right way. I, I, I'm willing to put it on the line, not for my career, not for my own prestige, not for my own success, but I'm willing to put it on the line for Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And so whoever it is may be imitating you, somebody in your family, somebody in your sphere of influence, maybe for our students, it's somebody else at school that they're looking up to you, maybe it's an underclassman. 
So here's the one I want you to wrestle with. So when they see, when they watch, what kind of life are they imitating? What are you laying out there for them? And may it reflect one that did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but came and walked among us and laid down his life for us. And aren't we so grateful that he did? That we may have life in his name. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I know it is so easy to be puffed up. So I pray that as we seek to be your church, as we seek to be the Jesus people in this time and this place, that we would not chase after the markers of success that come to us from other sources, but that we imitate those that imitate Jesus. That people in this area would see us maybe with a look of confusion at first because we don't line up on on what they think success looks like but that we would bring humility and grace and peace and a presence and a sense of service into this world that we would lay down our lives for this community so that you may be glorified in it all. Father, help us to remember that we're at the end of the line. We're not leading this parade. Jesus is. So it's in his name that I pray. Amen.